time for 28. Are corporations really people? The 28th Amendment. Ever since the Supreme Court's ruling on Citizens United, the electoral landscape has changed. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Good morning. This is a journey toward a more perfect union. I'm your host, Frank Falvey, and I have my copy of the Constitution here in front of me. Always and, the feel-good beach read of the summer. <laughs> absolutely. And it says, meeting in what is now Independence Hall from May 25th to September 17, 1787, they sought to form a more perfect union. The Constitution was actually ratified in 1789. And the main body of it is as adopted, but they realized that there was something missing in this Constitution. And so very early on in 1791, they put in the first 10 amendments, which is called the Bill of Rights. And since then, we are now up to 20 seven amendments. The last one, I think it was pretty frivolous. It says no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. And that was in 1992. Jeff, can you introduce uh, our guest, uh, uh, Jeff Clements, and our regular panel is here this morning for the, our listeners. PJ is here, Natalie is here, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones is here, and Jeff Roy is here. I turn it to you, Jeff. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Frank and Pete and Natalia and Mike. It's uh, great to see everyone back for, uh, for another week, and I'm really excited that uh, we have the opportunity to meet with uh, Jeff Clements. Uh, and talk about uh, his great work with the proposed 28th Amendment, which uh, would uh, overturn Citizens United. And he's been uh, devoted to this uh, particular effort. And uh, he's the president of American Promise, which is a national group uh, working on this and some, some other issues. And I'll just call to your attention, if you go to their website, one of the things you'll see is the quote, imagine a government run by people, not money. Uh, Jeff is an American attorney, an author, and uh, as I said, co-founder and CEO of American Promise. He's also the author of Corporations Are Not People, Reclaiming Democracy from Big Money and Global Corporations. You may remember uh, he was here in Franklin a couple of years ago uh, talking about that uh, particular group, um, that particular book and uh, working with the folks in, uh, in Franklin uh, on that issue. Uh, he's been in private practice for three decades, and he's also the founder of uh, Whaleback Partners LLC, which provides sustainable financing to businesses 
in the local agricultural community. And uh, he's been a partner in a major Boston law firm and served as an assistant attorney general and chief of the Public Law Enforcement Bureau in the Attorney General's office in Massachusetts. So, Jeff, I'd love for you to kick off the show and talk to us about what the 28th Amendment's all about and what you've been doing to uh, make that happen. And thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Representative. Good, good to see you, Jeff, and, and um, you know, Pete and everybody, Frank. Um, so, I, it's good to be back in Franklin, too. I, I really enjoyed being there a few years ago at the high school. Uh, great community, great conversation, and toward a more perfect union, indeed. That's what it takes, is those kind of conversations and, and civics that go on there. So, thank you so much. You know, I, I think I don't need to tell anybody we got a real problem in this country with money in politics. I think everybody now knows it. We just had a $14 billion election in 2020. That's double what it was in 2016 when it was $7 billion. There's no reason it won't double again and double again and double again because there's no stopping this once the Supreme Court bulldozed the checks and balances um, and, and the Citizens United decision 10 years ago and, and, and decreed basically over the will of the people that unlimited money in politics is just free speech um, or that any big global corporation is just like you and me they can spend unlimited money or you know big powerful union can can spend unlimited money the the all the all the checks and guards that um, you know frank and in his constitution knows very well um, that are the the bulwark of american democracy were bulldozed and now we have global money pouring in local state federal elections uh, you know we just did a report on the main senate race and if you know Maine, it's, you know, not a lot of people. It's a, it's a, a pretty rural state, you know, a little over a million people in the whole state. But Senator Susan Collins was running. And the Democrats, of course, were contesting with the Republicans for control of the Senate. That's what it comes down to. It's a power struggle in Washington. And Americans now are bystanders like I remember a candidate in New Hampshire saying, you know, I feel like a civilian in a war zone. And he was trying to run, but all this money's coming in from the outside, billions of dollars to basically spread disinformation, misinformation, attack ads, tear us apart, hurt us against each other, because you basically have wealthy interests fighting for control in Washington. So in Maine, they had a $200 million Senate race, $200 million in a state with you know, less than a million voters. And we just did a report at American Promise that dug into where that money came from. Almost all of it dominated by huge donors, wealthy, wealthy donors, some of them giving up well over a million dollars. Imagine being able to write a check for a campaign for a million dollars. All of them outside of Maine, having no real, real connection to Maine, no interest in Maine, no knowledge of Maine, what they cared about was power in Washington. And it's on both sides. It's the Democrat, uh, you know, we looked at the Democratic Senate Majority PAC, Chuck Schumer's Super PAC, and we looked at Mitch McConnell's Super PAC, because they were the big spenders across the country battling for control of the Senate. Now, you know, the party shouldn't even have Super PACs. Supposedly they're independent, but everybody knows they're not. And in theory, this is all free speech. Everybody knows that's not true. So we're living in this sort of Alice in Wonderland world where we pretend all these things about free speech and stuff. 
and then the American people are just overwhelmed and drowned out. And I'll just leave it there with one. This is why we need the amendment, by the way. I'm going to get back to that uh, good question. Um, uh, so we, but you know, we amendments are hard, as as, as Frank will tell you, um, and you don't do them unless you really have a big problem. And we have a big problem. That's my point. And so you know, there's my friend David Trahan in Maine. He's head of the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine. You know, he's they they they're pretty influential in the political politi- politics in Maine and the Republican side. And he couldn't get any airtime. He couldn't get any message out because it was so dominated by the out-of-state billionaires and, and donors. And he called. He said we were under an avalanche. That was his quote. We're under an avalanche, and nobody could hear us. And this is supposed to be about free speech. And I think every American feels like that right now. We're under an avalanche and nobody can hear us. So we can fix it. That's the good news. So we imagine a government run by people, not all this money. We can not only imagine it, we can do it with a constitutional amendment. It would say we the people have the ability to enact reasonable limits that are fair on all sides that say, you know what, the people need to be heard. The money that's needed for campaigns should come from all of us in small amounts, however we want to donate, we should be able to, but then have limits so that your your 25 bucks matters and your 50 bucks matters. And our elected officials and candidates don't have to spend all their time pandering to wealthy interests and we don't get torn apart by hyper-partisan misinformation. So that's what the amendment will do. And it's all well on its way. Massachusetts has been a leader. Franklin was a leader, one of the early towns in Massachusetts to pass a resolution saying, we want this amendment and now, you know, towns and cities all over Massachusetts, all over the country have done it. It's cross-partisan. It unites Americans. It brings us together to do something big, big, big for our country, for our future. So it's pretty exciting. I feel privileged to be doing this work. You know, but it, it, one of the things, Jeff, that I guess, and I've been contemplating this issue since Citizens United. First off, I was absolutely amazed that the Supreme Court came to the conclusion that they did that a corporation is a person. Um, and part of what I guess I would ask for your clarity on is how the Supreme Court has been wrong a number of times. They are not infallible, first off. And second, because they have been wrong, it takes litigation and a much wiser court, I guess, to correct their errors. And in this particular instance, I'm not sure whether we need a constitutional amendment to overturn or restrict Citizens United, but a smarter, <laughs> for the sake of a better term, Supreme Court. Because when, uh, because when I look at the term person as it's referred to in the Constitution, let me give you a couple examples. For example, in the 12th Amendment, there are many occasions where it talks about the person who runs for president of the United States if he or she receives blah, blah, blah. The person is mentioned numerous times throughout the, throughout the Constitution, and it clearly references a human being, an individual. It does not represent uh, or indicate an entity. So I guess, why wouldn't litigation in terms of at least with regard to Citizens United and a smarter court achieve the same thing? Well, it's a great question, Walker. And I, um, I wish we had a, a smarter uh, court. I wish we had a, <laughs> a uh, I, 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 and believe me, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I've practiced law for 30 years. Um, litigation is, is something I did, uh, both for the 
Commonwealth and, and in private practice. I did a Supreme Court brief in the Citizens United case. Uh, but let me tell you, I did a, another brief a few years later, <laughs> helping the Attorney General in Montana defend the Montana's laws, anti-corruption laws. It, the law in Montana had stood for 100 years um, since back in the day when Montana was dominated by the big copper companies, the big mining companies, and the people said enough is enough, we gotta take our government back. And they passed a law limiting money from corporations and unions in, in state politics. And um, the Mont we went to the Supreme Court of Montana, there's a smart court, eight to one, we won. And mm -hmm. the, the, the Montana Supreme Court said, we're not sure what Citizens United was thinking, and maybe there's some federal <laughs> law that nobody told us about. But the yeah. First Amendment has been the First Amendment. The Constitution has been the Constitution for a long, long time. This law has stood for 100 years. We see no reason why it shouldn't stand now. And I'm paraphrasing. They didn't really say it just like that, but the legalese translated comes down to, was the Supreme Court of the United States out of their mind? We're not knocking down this mm -hmm. law. We need mm -hmm. this law. Well, it went up to the Supreme Court. It was a big, dark money front group that took the case. It was American Tradition Partnership. They always have these nice names. Nobody knew where the money came from. Nobody knew who they were. They wanted to spend money to control Montana. They take it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court reverses the Montana Supreme Court. They say they don't even give a state in the United States that had this law for 100 years, eight to one Supreme Court case in Montana. They don't even give them a hearing. The Supreme Court of the United States slapped them down, no hearing, and said, you're wrong, Citizens United applies everywhere, corporations are people, money is free speech, get in line, Montana. And here's the thing, Montana didn't get in line. The next day after the Supreme Court decided, this is back in 2012, mm -hmm. the governor of Montana at the time, he's Brian Schweitzer, stood, he was a Democrat, stood with the lieutenant governor, John Bollinger, he was a Republican. And they say, we stand together on this, there's no way this will stand, we need a constitutional amendment, we're going to do a, get a constitutional amendment. The Supreme Court of the United States is wrong. And, they had, and we launched a ballot initiative. I was involved in that effort. That November, 75% of Montana people voted yes in the ballot initiative, saying we need a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. We're going to reverse the Supreme Court. Supreme Court of the United States, you're going to reverse us? No, we're going to reverse you with a, yeah. with a, with a constitutional amendment. So that's the thing. The, the Supreme Court, Walker, has had their chance over and over again these past 10 years, mm -hmm. whenever they had the chance, they made it worse. Mm -hmm. They struck down more campaign finance laws. They struck down more anti-corruption laws. So they're going the wrong direction. I, th I don't think there's a chance that the Supreme Court will fix this before we have our amendment. So basically, you're right. Those are the two ways. Usually the Supreme Court way is, 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 is wiser. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's more likely to... Um, this is not usual though. So let me tell you what I think this situation is. Eight times the people of the United States passed and ratified constitutional amendments that reverse Supreme Court decisions. Mm -hmm. This would be the ninth time. So this is something we do mm -hmm. and we only do it when the Supreme Court not only is wrong, cause you know, we're human, they're all fallible and they give them a chance to correct it over the years, they usually do. It's when they're wrong in such a catastrophic way that the people just can't let it sit. And so Dred Scott, you know, saying yes. African Americans have no yeah. rights. Uh, Minor versus Happersat. Nobody remembers the overturned Minor versus Happersat campaign. But that case that nobody remembers now said women have no right to vote. Right. And right. 19th Amendment reversed it. So over and over again, we do that. 
So that's the situation today. If we want to fix this, we got to, we got to, you know, frankly, just like roll up our sleeves, do this hard work. And the other thing I got to say about this, it's actually better that we do it by an amendment now. The last thing we need is another five to four decision, even if it goes the right way, that's hyper-partisan. The court is like a political football now. We already have almost everybody agreed with us. And what a chance to unite the country, to do something big together, and to lock it into the Constitution, as, as Frank reminds us, where amendments are virtually forever. Let's settle this once and for all, not have it go back and forth in the Supreme Court and just be politicized when we know what we want to do as a country. Let's put it in the Constitution once and for all. Put the Constitution back on the side of the people and back on the side of, you know, people govern this country, not big money. Point well made, and I'm glad you're in this fight, Jeff. Oh, thank you. You know, I'd love to um, focus a little bit on the actual language so that folks who are listening to this saying, well, what, what are they talking about? In what's proposed are language suggesting that the words people, person, or citizen do not include corporations, limited liability companies, or other corporate entities. In other words, it's an amendment to state the obvious that to get protection, you need to breathe and you, you have to possess both a heart and a soul to be a person. I can't believe we need that to uh, clarify it. But uh, the other thing I, I wanted to uh, drag Natalia into this conversation because, Natalia, you just went through a congressional campaign and money was certainly an issue and I'd love for you to address that in the context of what uh, what Jeff just said. Absolutely, um, and thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us today. And you know, I entered a race uh, as those of you who followed it knew because I felt I had something to offer at a time of a crisis. I'm an epidemiologist who has been in the UN system for a long time, who felt that at a time of COVID-19, you need people with my skill set who understand politics and policies to enter politics, and it was a desire to serve. I have not gone up the ranks in sort of internal politics. I don't have networks of wealthy friends and family. And straight away, people said to me, you know, you're going to have to raise a million dollars. There's no way you can even be competitive without raising a million dollars. So from the right from the beginning, a person like myself, a scientist, a woman, um, someone who my parents live in Greece, they're Greek citizens, they're not American citizens, so they can't give me, you know, parental wealth, you know, is excluded and told and deterred and told, you know, you cannot run. You should not run because money is everything. And I said, but I want to run. I have a skill set. I have something to offer right now and you need me to run. And so, you know, with volunteers, I was able to get about 400 volunteers straight away. But, you know, I had four months and I raised the least from every single candidate. Maybe there was one candidate that raised less than me. And it felt like that was what I should be doing with my time. People said, you can't spend every hour talking to constituents or getting on you know, Zoom calls, getting on debates. You need to be calling wealthy donors. That's what you need to be spending your time. And it was outrageous. You know, Honestly, it's outrageous to tell a candidate that they should be spending 10 hours a day calling donors rather than calling people that they want to you know, explain their policies and their views to. And in many ways, uh, you know, I'm, I did well comparatively. You know, I raised $400,000 in four months and I came fourth. So per dollar, I spent, you know, $11 per vote, whereas some people, you know, spend $150 per vote or $200 per vote. And there were PACs that came into it. You know, the, the person who won, our, our uh, Jake Cockenclaus, who I have great respect for, his parents set up 
a pack and, you know, poured in millions of dollars and some packs got behind some other candidates and some packs got against other candidates. So there was, you know, money became central and it wasn't our message. It was, do you have enough money to buy a TV ad? Literally, that's what they said. They said, it doesn't matter. They just need to see your face and recognize your name. They don't need to know what you think or what you believe. They just need to see you. And can you spend 500,000 on a TV ad? And my answer was, no, I can't spend 500,000 on a TV ad. And to be honest, Jeff, that experience, I loved every single part of connecting with the residents of Franklin. I loved the conversations I had. I loved listening and trying to fight. I did not like the calling the donors. And if there's one thing that will deter me from running again is that money issue. The fact that someone will tell me that I have to spend 80% of my time as a candidate raising money. And if you want people like me to run, if you want a more diverse uh, government, if you want you know, to change who is in Washington, you need to change the money piece because people like me are not going to spend 80% of our time talking to donors and we do not want to be held you know, I don't, I don't want to be in anybody's pockets. I don't. And so I want to be able to have, you know, critical thinking to listen, to, to discuss, to debate, and to come to conclusions. And so this is a bit of a monologue, but I do think it has implications not only about what government, you know, what role we have as, vo- as people who vote, but what type of people decide to run if you don't get money out of, um, out of politics. Also, uh, let me talk to uh, Dr. Natalia's point. Beyond money, there are other resources as well that the people own. You may find this interesting, Jeff. My expertise is media. Uh, As a person who has worked on many campaigns, helping politicians get out their message, but also as a person who has been involved in radio and television, building stations and so on. The FCC, when it was formed in the 20s, came out of the Department of Commerce, and it was formed with the idea that Congress recognized that what they used to call the ether, now we know it as the radio spectrum, the spectrum was a precious natural natural national resource. The country collectively owned the spectrum and it needed regulation. The spectrum is owned by the people and radio and TV stations are stewards of precious slices of that spectrum. So that's the grounding of of the decision-making. All through the decades of broadcasting, up until about the 80s, radio and TV stations had to make a commitment under a fairness doctrine to provide equal time, generously so, for politicians. Uh, That would be time that they would offer. And that was part of their public affairs effort, to operate in what the FCC called the public interest, convenience, and necessity which is a wonderful legal phrase I read as poetry. That said, TV stations have gradually eroded their public affairs, public service obligation to the point where it's just about non-existent. And the only thing that politicians can do is buy FaceTime. There is almost no free FaceTime available anymore. Uh, And I think that that's a small tragedy because the TV stations and radio stations are supposed to operate in service to their respective publics under the FCC guidelines, which gradually have memory. You know, you bring up a very interesting point too, Pete, with regard to the media, Uh, because I too uh, am a product uh, in my early career before I settled on focusing 100% on teaching and on uh, a career in, as Jeff says, that particular spectrum. 
Tell the listeners what that means, Michael. <laughs> uh, I was in radio and television. He rocked uh, the house. Yeah, yeah. I was a broadcaster, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, in a couple of different uh, frames. One was top forty, and the other was news and uh, uh, commentary. Uh, but one of the things too that I've seen the evolution of, uh, and I totally agree, Pete, is this: the the inability of politicians from all spectrums to get time uh, in the media, uh, not based on what you pay, but based upon a a free, open discussion and exposure of issues. Exactly. And part of that, now I'm going to be really, really critical here because I think part of that is really due to the, what I call the false premise that we have a two-party system. Uh, and it's a good thing we're talking about the Constitution today because nowhere in the Constitution of the United States is there any acknowledgement or support for political parties. Nowhere. Political parties are a construct of the human beings right from the beginning who saw it as an advantage for us to basically start with a coalition of like-minded folks in order to immediately sort of do a polling or a straw poll, if you will. All of you who agree with the Whigs, let's call ourselves Whigs. All of you who are Federalist, uh, let's band together and call ourselves Federalist, and we will then compete the Federalist against the Whigs. And that kind of dynamic has basically shaped this country, I think, into a dark corner. Because if you look at what really is at stake, it's the free expression and breadth of ideas that really we ought to be about, not a Republican or Democrat or Republicans are conservatives, Democrats are liberals, which I think is just another construct of this competitive playing field, if you will. So let me throw this out to the group. I would propose to you that one of the things that we have to do in terms of education, because I don't think that there's any constitutional amendment for this. This is one of really just education. We have to get our citizens to understand that they are being manipulated by parties and that parties, when they see something going awry, will come up with legislation and rules to protect themselves. And that Citizens United is really just simply one of those rules that actually, and I think you put it well, Jeff, to help protect the political party system as we know it and not really contribute to what I would think would be the free exchange and open discussion of ideas for what's better for us as a country. I, I do. I, 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 that's a really, really important point. Not only were the parties not in the Constitution, there was real concern. James Madison called it faction, you know, that we would, mm-hmm. we would destroy democracy by going into parties. Now, because the people have always tried to check the, the way that power can concentrate and lock out competition in the, in the two-party system, you know, we've done a lot of reforms over the years when needed, including limits on money in politics, because if you're in the party, you control the rules, you're a gatekeeper, you control the money. The primary system, remember the party bosses used to pick the candidates and the people said, you know what, we need primaries, let the people have a choice. The party shouldn't lock out the competition. Now that's kind of 
been so corrupted by the money and the uh, you know the concentration of power in the two party system, and they're not and and so we're we're in another age of reform. I think where we're going to see a lot. We were involved in a ballot initiative in Alaska, which became the twenty first state to formally call for the constitutional amendment that we're talking about to limit money. But it also did something else. It said no more closed primaries. Every voter gets to vote in the primaries. Every voter gets to be heard. And in Maine, they did ranked choice voting, trying to say, you know what, let's let the voters rank the candidates and they might pick somebody who's, you know, completely outside the parties. And in that Maine Senate race, we had four candidates actually. You know, everybody heard of Susan Collins and Sarah Gideon, the two major candidates, because they were the parties. They were the ones who got the 200 million. It was about evenly split. They were the ones, the party billionaires on both sides pushed. And even though they had ranked choice voting and the, the idea was to get that information and those ideas and those different candidates out to the voters, there was a conservative uh, on the right running named Max Lynn. There was a more progressive candidate on the left named Lisa Savage, a teacher in Maine. They had good ideas. Nobody heard their ideas. No, nobody, they had no chance. So this big reform that Mainers fought for to change their system, to open it up, to challenge the parties was just smothered by the party money. And, you know, there's just a report out two days ago looking at the top 12 donors, just 12 people, dozen donors in the United States who have given over $3 billion, with a B, dollars to the two parties. Six of them are Republican, six of them are Democrat. And that money is flowing straight into the party machinery. And you know what? We're now closing on 50% of Americans who actually aren't in either party. They call it themselves independents. Uh, the, the party system is losing the confidence of the people and it's getting more and more closed because of the money. So I, that's why I'm confident we're going to open this up. We always have before. Parties may have a place, but they got to have the checks and balances and openness so that we, the people, can get ideas, can debate, can hear each other, can argue with each other, you know, can compete. Uh, but we, we can't, it's unsustainable the way it's going for the reasons Michael said, you know, that they're not even really competitive parties anymore. It's like, it's like a, a, a theater of, of, of sort mm -hmm. of outrage and misinformation rather than competing mm -hmm. on different policy ideas and, and letting the people decide. Let me go back for a minute to uh, corporations. Uh, a lot of people say, well, what did the founders mean in the Constitution and, and anything that is outside of it is a re- interpretation of the Constitution. Well, corporations never existed when the Founding Fathers formed the Constitution, and corporations didn't come into play until what, 18-something, uh, 78, or I'm not sure exactly uh, what year, but they never, they never existed. So to call corporations uh, people is new, and I believe it was Justice Powell that began to lay the argument when he was on the Supreme Court to to promote that corporations really are people. And again, he was doing it from a point of view that business is more important than individuals. You know, yeah, it sounds like uh, Frank has read your book quite thoroughly because I th you devote a whole chapter to that concept. Yeah, no, I certainly do. And I, you know, I think what we're finding, there's a lot of corporate power of uh, the big debate right now about corporations. Uh, 
on both sides, uh, but what, what level of influence should they have? Uh, you know, on the right, there's concern about, uh, uh, well, uh, all around, there's concern about the concentrated big internet and tech corporations, whether it's social media or Google and, and the control advice uh, that that has around information flows. So it's it's a perennial issue in American life. And that it's another reason why I think this, this Supreme Court decision won't stand because it's just, it's disabled the common tools that we've always used. Corporations have a strong role to play in the economy. They, they, you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I have, um, you know, invested in, in, in startup companies. Those are corporations too. Job creators are, are all are, many corporations. They have a strong role to play. Uh, but we've always been cautious. Whether it's the railroads, the mining corporations, the oil companies, now tech companies, we've been cautious about the power that they could wield. So. I think Walker was going to jump in on. Yeah, I was going to. Uh, you know, let me let me clarify one point as a historian that corporations did exist, uh, and corporations have existed for centuries, guys. Okay, not in the sense as we call them corporations, but let's go. You know, and and let me give you just one simple example: the East India Tea Company. The East India Tea Company was a corporation, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, in America, we have defined corporations in a more, uh, I don't know if you want to call it restrictive or liberal way, but we have defined corporations. The idea, however, that corporations were individuals is, I think, as Jeff and as you're pointing out, Frank, is a brand new concept. No one in the 17th century would have thought that the East India Tea Company was a person. Everyone knew, I mean, most people just in their, you know, just in their common sense understood that that's, you know, uh, you know, to refer to the East India Tea Company as a person would be ridiculous, ludicrous. And the idea of, and, and now let me relate that back to political party. In his farewell speech, which is one of uh, my wife's favorite quotes, uh, and as a matter of fact, we put it as part of her epitaph. And George Washington said, however, insert political parties, because he was talking about these entities. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. When he was saying that as he's leaving office, he had been a witness to that initial sort of uh, lining up, if you will, and choosing sides as the first president of the United States where people were, uh, again, aligning themselves around a name and then defining the ideology of that particular group. Let's not forget that that's inherent in our total framework here. And let me also say, too, that the Constitution is not and never has been a perfect document. I reject all of those people who call themselves originalist because the Constitution was intended to evolve. And those who try to make the argument that you have to go back to the original words, 
All right. I think, uh, you know, people like Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton and Washington are rolling over in their graves, laughing at us, thinking you people who we tried to give you a platform for the future are coming back to us thinking that we were perfect. We knew we were flawed. We knew it. That's why we did things and called them compromises, because we knew we were not coming together in what might be seen in the best interest of the country. I get really worked up over this because I think, and let me give you, let's shift in terms of another piece of the Constitution, Jeff, that I'd really love your, uh, <laughs> love your insights about, which is the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which impacted my family in, in an extremely strong way. My family was from Georgia and Alabama, uh, slaves, and when we look at the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, most of us stop. We stop reading real quick because the 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, okay, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And here's what we've done over the years. We read this as neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's what most of us read. However, it wasn't until, even in my own education, it wasn't until suddenly you realized that the system put its own trap door into the 13th Amendment. And if I was going to oppose uh, propose another amendment, it would be to go back to the 13th Amendment and eliminate that second sentence which is except as uh, punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been. In other words, slavery is legal if you've been convicted of a crime. The state owns you. We can sell you. We can take your services and put you into bondage, which a number of states did right after 1865 up to, I would propose, 20 21. Your thoughts, any of you? I'd, I'd love to jump in on that, Michael. It's such an important point, and, it, and it's a repeated point, not just about the 13th Amendment, because I, I think at the time they probably, at least the ones who were uh, at that time the Republicans and the radical Republicans who actually were trying to implement a, what, what we promise ourselves. It's why we're called American promise. You know, we think this amendment we're working on is important, but we're really all about fundamentally is the promise is we're equal human beings, uh, liberty for everyone, and we're going to govern ourselves. Uh, that's, that's the American promise. And we never reach it. We are flawed. We are, we need to, we need to keep trying. So the 13th amendment uh, was was to end slavery. The 14th Amendment was to say once and for all, we're not going to debate this anymore. If you're born in America, you're a citizen. You're a citizen, period. We don't care what color your skin is. You're born here, you're a citizen. Uh, the 15th Amendment said, we don't care what color your skin is. You have a right to vote. And look what happened. We We had the best words, the best intent of some people, but there is a dark state of America, which uh, we all have because we're human. We're, fallen, we're living a fallen world, right? And there are people, when you have power, who don't want to give it up. And they're given a choice between power and equality, power and sharing uh, responsibility to govern ourselves, 
too often people will say, well, I need the power. So too bad about those other people. That's why we have to keep in the fight day after day, year after year. The amendment gives us a chance to do the to do better. Just like the 15th Amendment gave us a chance to fight for the right to vote and, and shame that it took more than 100 years that that they used the 13th Amendment to do Jim Crow and, and put people, you know, lock people up and then put them on chain gangs that they used, you know, this so-called, you know, the, 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 the again, a little phrase in the 15th and other parts of the Constitution that say the state should make the election, the rules for their own elections. Now, in theory, that's true. The state should, like Massachusetts, should, we should set our rules for state elections. But if you have bad intentioned people not willing to share power with their fellow Americans, they're going to say, okay, we'll regulate elections. We're going to have a literacy test. We're going to have a poll tax. And then we're going to use those laws to keep people out from voting. And that's what's happened again and again. We're still fighting that today, right? To vote. And, we're, and so, you know, I, Michael's point is exactly right. I, and, you know, it really calls on all of us. We got to get the amendments and then we got to live up to what we say we are. Because I think we're everybody wins when we do. It turns out, you know, you don't have to clutch and hold your power so fearfully. You share it and everybody wins. So I think that's the other side of the American story that we see over and over again is that Americans actually do believe in the in equality, liberty, and we're going to do this crazy thing of pursuing happiness together. And in the end, we always get it right. As Winston Churchill said, after exhausting all the other possibilities, we get it right. And so we just got to keep the struggle going and, and not give up on ourselves. So, Question for you. Uh, one of the things I'd like to know, uh, Jeff Clements is also the author of a book. How can people learn more by drilling down into the book and understanding the 28th Amendment? Corporations are not people. Tell us more. Well, thank thank you, Pete. Uh, the book is Corporations Are Not People, uh, and it's available wherever books are sold. So I won't pick out any one uh, any one place uh, online or offline. Uh, corporations are not people. Uh, you know, it's a 2014 edition, and uh, so it's a little. Um, there's a lot more information now. So I, I'm happy to plug the book, but I also know there's an awful lot of good resources to learn more. I think AmericanPromise.net is a good place to start. There's a lot of good books. Jane Mayer's Dark Money is one. Um, Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Whitehouse, wrote a book called Captured. You know, there's a lot of good information out there. That, uh, and, and, and my book, as I, uh, I'm happy to say, is, is a good place too. And it, it, it was personal in a lot of ways. Uh, it reflected, it's not a personal story. It's about what happened to the Constitution and what happened with money and corporate power in this after the Citizens United case, but it was really a, driven my interest in this by my years in the law and trying to enforce the law in the Attorney General's office and just seeing the will of the people stymied again and again. Um, and I was trying to honestly understand what happened. This was not what the Constitution was meant to do. What went wrong? How do we get it back? And that's what the book was about. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. This is. Uh, I don't even need coffee if I just start the day with you guys and and, and we talk like this. I uh, I love it. I think I think this conversation's going on around the country, and it inspires me that you know Americans can handle self government and uh, and this big project we're doing for equality, liberty, and freedom. Right. Actually, I have a question for Jeff Roy. When I was running, uh, there was a journalist who is a friend who had followed two Congresswomen for six to seven months, and she said to me why would you want this job? 
they get up every day and they make a list of which donors they need to call. And, you know, they spend still, even after campaigning, a significant amount of their time just making these phone calls. And it's not their constituencies, it's their donors. I want to ask you, do you think money in politics makes your job, does it take away time from actually doing what you need to be doing to to govern and and to you know make our make our state a better place. Well, I'll, I I will share with you that uh, folks had asked me uh, why I wasn't getting into that congressional race. They had seen the work that I was doing and uh, said, you know, this seems like it would be a perfect fit for you. But I have to be honest, the notion of spending eighty percent of my time raising money only to go to a city where government is in turmoil and knowing that it would take probably 10 years to turn things around to uh, make uh, Congress work again. It would literally take an act of Congress. It would take an act of Congress. (laughs) And I looked at that and I said, I am in such a good position here in Massachusetts, I'm working on state laws and state issues which truly affect people in their everyday life. And I get to do some policy issues without interference from big money interests. One of the greatest things about Massachusetts is that lobbyists are limited to donations of $200. So no one can ever suggest that we can be bought by lobbyists, because, I mean, if you can be bought for $200, that's sad. And uh, so I would suggest and and say that money has absolutely nothing to do with the work that I do on a day-to-day basis. Now, keep in mind, I came at this uh, at age 50 is when I joined the state government. I was financially secure so I was able to do it. Um, I don't know that I would have been able to make this journey uh, as I was raising a family and mm-hmm. beginning uh, paying student loans, paying automobile loans, paying a mortgage. Uh, so money did have an influence on the timing of me uh, getting involved. But uh, I do not feel any pressure whatsoever from moneyed interests in the policy making that I do and in the decisions that I I can tell you, Jeff, that I have my own lobbying experience at the State House and found it very positive. There is a law currently being reviewed for its sunset status right now with respect to Massachusetts film jobs. That is tax credits for promoting film production in Massachusetts to bring more money out of the state into the state. And many states, by the way, have this law. There are there's nothing unique about it. Rhode Island does it, New Hampshire does it, et cetera. The idea is the states want film production because of its positive effects on the economy, an opportunity to promote the state. Uh, the origin of that law began in the early 1980s with my company and another company called September Productions. The two of us worked with a lobbyist across the state house, meeting with then Senate President Bulger, Nick Metaxas on the Department of Revenue side, and a long list of others to have a heart-to-heart talk about how it is that Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Film Bureau could participate in competing to bring more series programs like Cheers and more movies to the state. And while we 
were not victorious in year one, eventually uh, that became law. But the experience was, was sort of eye-opening and rather positive, actually, because they all asked thoughtful questions. Uh, the conversations were meaningful and clearly wanting to understand what was in the people's interest with the people, with the legislators and department heads that we spoke to at the time. So, you know, lobbyist is inherently a shaded word, but I think that there are lobbying efforts that operate truly in the people's interest. Frank, all I can say is, wow, wow, what a guest. Uh, And I have to say that, you know, the 28th Amendment, you know, signed me up. That said, you know, unfortunately, you know, with all the other amendments we have in our own column stockpile of amendments, I think, Frank, you and I should set this up for another what I'll call scintillating action-packed hour of Amendments Are Us. What do you think? I absolutely agree that we have a backlog of uh, 29 and 30 and 31 amendments uh, that I know I would like to propose. And I would encourage the listener to forward maybe their own amendments. There you go. How how do they do that, Pete? You can send your amendment and we look forward to reading it, to info, 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 at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. If you've got a favorite amendment that you would like us to propose, let's hear it. Frank, for all of our guests, our panel, great discussion today, and we'll continue with part two next week. For now, I'm Peter J. This is Franklin Public Radio. Franklin Public Radio.